The only hope for legitimate news and ultimately the survival of legitimate democracies is to keep focusing on trust, accuracy, meaning, explanation, and okay, we can all we all like a laugh and sort of funny stories, but if the, if, if the world is totally dominated by the funnies, we're all in a very serious position indeed. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. Digital publishing has been in a near constant state of development and transition since it began supplanting traditional press two decades ago. But with the recent dissolution of BuzzFeed News, the bankruptcy and sale of Vice Media, and ever-quickening developments in generative artificial intelligence, today's publishing leaders perhaps have their hands full now more than ever. What does the future of digital publishing and in particular digital news publishing look like? Joining me on the podcast today to discuss are Richard Reeves, Managing Director of the Association of Online Publishers, which is the UK trade body representing digital publishers, and Raymond Snoddy, the presenter of BBC's Newswatch from 2004 to 2013 and a longtime columnist for The Media Leader. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you both. Thank you. Thank you. Richard, for those out there listening that might not be familiar with you or the AOP, can you describe what you do and perhaps most importantly, what's been top of the agenda for publishers in recent months? Yeah, well, thank you. Yes, um, well, I'm the executive lead at the AOP, have been since uh, the middle of 2015. Um, came across them really uh, through some consulting work that I was doing prior to that. The AOP is a trade body, as you rightly explained, and we champion the interests of the creators of original quality content online. Um, one of the great things about AOP is that we've got a very broad church. So we've got quite a diverse membership, which includes the news publishers, magazine publishers, broadcasters, and also um, Pure Play. So <laughs> when you ask, you know, what have I been focused on, if you like, um, well, it's everything that's challenged uh, the ability of um, quality content creators to monetize what they do mm. and to uh, remain effective and visible in what they do. Mm. You wrote, or we wrote earlier this year, how the AOP was targeting, quote, unscrupulous tech vendors, unquote, uh, for what you described in an open letter as theft of publishers' intellectual property. I'm curious, have there been any updates over the past few months in terms of those conversations continued on? Yeah, they have. Um, the, 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 the letter was a long time coming. Uh, I think leading up to that point, we spent 12 to 18 months engaging all parties that perhaps we felt could uh, behave differently in the process. Um, and obviously, naturally, with the deprecation of third-party cookies, um, media owners are very aware of the importance of their data and contextual advertising opportunities. They're a collegiate lot, uh, the community I represent. So um, the driver always was very much around brand safety standards and the technologies that enabled the verification of those standards. Our issue was that, that many of the technologies operating in that space were not really fit for purpose, but they've done very well out of publishers and advertisers. Um, but as time moves on, the technologies evolve and then announcements of Google's to deprecate third-party cookies in browsers and so forth, um, you become increasingly aware of the need to be more robust around the protection of your intellectual property. And I think that um, broadly people have allowed it to continue for far too long um, and publishers uh, became increasingly aware that they needed to, to respond to a behaviour which basically, you know, 
technology businesses uh, over the last 20 years. They find a niche, uh, they'll push those boundaries, and they'll continue to make money for as long as they can get away with it. And I think in this particular instance, we're talking about metadata, you know, text to data mining, metadata and in-page text that wasn't theirs to trade uh, or to turn into any commercial model. Um, I think publishers, as I say, um, as a collegiate bunch initially, engaged in conversations around the idea of a model, a business model, which was based on or predicated on an agreement um, or, you know, some form of licensing agreement. Um, But yes, to answer your question, uh, it has stimulated some really positive conversations. And I'm aware of developments over the last couple of months, not just driven by publishers, not just driven by other technology players who who see it from the publisher perspective and want to respond with an alternate choice. But also I'm becoming more aware, and I think we've just had CAN, where a lot of advertisers and agencies also came together to discuss whether there are different approaches and different way forward. So I, I, I would argue that privately, I feel quite optimistic that those that have taken advantage of the opportunity have had their time and um, the tide is changing. And I think part of the motivation for that is that people um, throughout our industry are becoming increasingly aware of the impact of crawlers because of mm. the paranoia around generative AI and and content being used to help train and develop that AI. Mm. AI has been a predictably hot topic uh, this summer. In a previous episode of the podcast, the CEO of Future, John Steinberg, uh, addressed the developments fairly optimistically. Uh, He mentioned that the company is using it to generate content that is on average saving about 30% of a writer's time. And in an article by our editor Omar Oaks on the many AI discussions at CanLines last month, he reported a quote from Amir Malik, Accenture's Managing Director of Growth Marketing, that I thought was extremely telling from a consumer perspective. Uh, Referring to news and content articles, he said, quote, People just look at the headlines, the lead image, read the first few lines, and then they want to discuss it. There's only a smaller segment of the population that will read the whole answer, unfortunately. And so then, what's the opportunity cost of producing content with AI if people can't tell the difference? Suffice to say that opinions on AI around the publishing world have been kind of all over the board, with some people describing it apocalyptically, others saying we need to make use of this. Um, Richard, perhaps you can describe them for us in more detail, but Ray, you've written on how AI is changing the way journalists are working already. You've referred to it as the Wild West. Um, (laughs) Can you describe... What what I meant was that there's a prime example I've ever, I saw it, of people to be, should be proactive and get ahead of the game, not have it done to them, not find out in two or three years' time that the whole business of trust and what journalism means has been overturned by a bunch of cowboys who's only interested in making money and producing content at the lowest possible grade and the lowest possible fee. And that the argument that I was reflecting was the argument that um, nothing was done about the internet to regulate it. It's almost incredible to think that it's only now that people are starting to think, my goodness, there's so many benefits from the internet, but there's so many potential damage done to society as a result, and maybe we should do something about it. And we're talking about 15, 20 years on. Mm. I was was reflecting the view that actually uh, we should get on this now and decide or try to decide 
what are the benefits and what are the potential downsides? Uh, I think uh, one starting, and, and yes, of course, what you just said is true. There's an awful lot of donkey work in journalism of a mundane nature. I devoted, unfortunately, too much of my early life doing <laughs> some of the mundane stuff, even even sent even sent in a, in a previous century to stand outside an effing graveyard to write to write down the the names of the mourners and get into terrible trouble if you missed somebody significant out. I mean, we we and the, the cutting and pasting. So intelligent AI can take away a lot of the donkey work. What we it seems to me to be absolute heart of it is we must know who wrote what and in whose interest. Mm-hmm. And we pe- and the, the readers, the consumers, what call them what you will, have a right to know, did a computer do this or was a human being involved at the very least in the editing process? Yeah, mm. I, th- I think Ray makes some really important points here. Um, uh, the first of which, which resonates with me massively, is that um, you know we have to learn from the lessons of the past. Um, some of us are old enough to to have lived long enough as adults to see that these patterns have a habit every 15, 20 years reoccurring. And I think that um, to sit back and see where it falls out would be a mistake. And I don't see any publishers, certainly the community I work with, resting on the laurels. But I think the AI piece has to be broken down into to lots of considerations. And as Ray rounded up there, we have to trust to some degree, you know, regulators and politicians to recognise the role that they have in helping us define the purpose of which this technology is deployed, who deploys it and for what reason and how we identify it. Now, that that's, you know, that's the sort of top level bigger thing that, that they've got to worry about. Um, we, we, you know, in a commercial world, we've seen for some time avatorials, as they call it, branded content now. But Ray and I would always go, they're talking about avatorials. You know, the reality <laughs> is, the, the, you know, these things are labelled. You, 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 you know, you have to disclose uh, the origination of that content. One of the great things about my job within the trade body is I'm, I'm less involved in, if you like, the business decision end and more about the people that work in the coalface. So we have steering groups which range from all the disciplines through product and audience development through to HR, journalism, commercial adopts, and so forth. And um, there are some extraordinary smart people in this space these days. And, um, well, I'm not saying that there weren't in the past, but I am taken aback by, you know, if you think about when I took on this job in 2015, the resilience, uh, the pressure, the impact, the, you know, the, all the advertising, which every publisher at the time was entirely reliant upon, an ad-funded model, it, it was all going somewhere else. And they've had to to really dig in and, and, and find that resolve and reinvent and um, innovate and reduce dependency on one particular source of funding and um, diversify into other areas. And it's just amazing to watch them over that journey. So now with the AI piece, in particular, large language models that obviously naturally are, are crawling, you know, original quality content to, to inform and educate their AI. I, I worry about search. You know, so much of an online publisher's strategy these days is about the off-platform strategy, the discovery and identification and driving people back. You know, publishers invest a considerable amount in video. It's frustrating that it's very hard to find their original video content in their site. That, that's another conversation we could always go back to. But, but, but broadly, 
What will be the impact on that traffic and the ability to monetize? If exactly as Ray says, you know, when you're talking about that, that headline piece that you quoted, if people feel that the information they were looking for has been served in that original result, you know, what impact will that have on the ability to monetize? And I think one of the interesting things, which very much works in our favor is, I think it was the new Reuters piece where they're talking about further declines in people's desire to have content surfaced for them, mm. making assumptions about, oh, you're like this and you're like that. And in a way, that, that that's an opportunity for premium content providers. I mean, there is an element of, of functionality within that, 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 that in, in terms of the service and experience they provide to their users. But it was more about, if you dig into the details, it's more about people not actually trusting themselves to know the difference between something that is news and something that is fake. And certainly within the social media and other platforms, the, the general belief is, 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 is a search engine or AI telling me what I like. Um, I'm not sure I entirely trust that because I think people are less appreciative of those echo chambers and so forth as mm. well. And and I've seen really good approaches to journalism since, if you like, last three years, that headline purpose before profit and things, that whilst certain news outlets know that a, a, a proportion of their audiences come there for validation, that that, that they share those views there is a responsibility that editors and journalists recognize now around presenting all the facts and wider choice and opinion and allowing people access within those articles to to other contradictory views that may exist out there and that's that's again something that that is curated by quality by journalists, people. people, humans, exactly, right. and not something that you get through AI. There's, there's one, there's, there's another aspect of it. We, we haven't, we've, we've talked really a, a bit about the commercial opportunities of AI, and and uh, journalism can be some of the donkey work can be taken out of it. But there's much, much more sinister possibilities that what bad players will use AI for mm. to generate totally illegitimate content. They're already we, doing it. We still so. are probably already still already doing it. We st can you imagine? We still haven't got totally to the bottom, though we may have suspicions of the role of Russia in Brexit in the UK and in the election of Trump in the United States. The deliberate as an act of policy spreading false information online. Can you imagine how much greater use sophisticated bad state players could use this to completely undermine the information systems of legitimate democracies. And really, I think it's time we woke up to this pretty quick. Well, what's the what's the solution to, I mean, there's a lot of problems and opportunities that you've both yeah. mentioned. What are the solutions? Is it individual governments creating policy to no, no, create guardrails? No, um, no, sorry, sorry, that, that, that would be a small step forward. But I think we've got beyond that. It has to be done at the international level. And will America tackle such things when it may be central to their view of a free market and information? Mm -hmm. But certainly, certainly for 26 countries of the European Union, that would be a very good place to start. Mm. One country standing out against these, these giants or bad guys is probably not enough. Mm -hmm. And and it also speaks to, Richard, as you brought up earlier, publishers are concerned that uh, AI could be used to scrape and, and sort of create content that ends up putting them out of business. And then in doing so, also creating then fake content that looks and sounds like a real publisher. 
um, that that could be to the detriment of, of democracy, uh, yeah. essentially. I, mean, I agree with you both. I, I you know that this is something that um, that that is a really significant threat. Um, but I do also think that consumers are waking up to it and they're changing. And also, you know, uh, again, I know I'm talking about the commercialization of things, but. Um, there's there's a real sea change as well amongst um, advertising brands and their agencies who want to return back to those conversations direct with publishers, be positioned within premium content, understand how they can address some of those ad blocking blockers of of, of, of brand safety things that are just ridiculous in terms of the amount of content that is really quality content being blocked by probabilistic nature of these these cumbersome tools but the the fact of the matter is that the consumers are changing their behavior um they are becoming wise and concerned and i think just to build on your point there was something i i read that newsguard who obviously is one of those organizations that you know helps or, or to provide signals of of, of quality environments and trustworthy content they, uh, in a recent study, they identified 49 different websites across seven languages that it, it, it appeared to be entirely generated by AI. Mm. And um, these large language models are designed to make it look like human content. And, and the concern around that, I think, it's something that we need to all be very aware of. Uh, th these are made for advertising models, ultimately, mm. and they represent 21% of all impressions and 15% of all ad spend in the market, which is ridiculous. Mm. We we can do very little about people prepared to spend their lives watching cats on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> they, they are probably a lost generation, um, but the only hope for legitimate news and ultimately the survival of legitimate democracies is to keep focusing on trust, accuracy, meaning, explanation. And okay, we can all, we all like a laugh and sort of funny stories, but if the, if, if the world is totally dominated by the funnies, we're all in a very serious position indeed. Mm. Well, I want to, I want to push back to an extent on that. I'm a, you know, 20 something. So lots yeah. of, I, I don't, I'm not a big TikTok user myself, but I know almost oh. everyone else my age is. Yeah. Um, I know a 12, a 12 year old who does not, nothing else. Right. Well, I mean, we can talk about perhaps how problematic is that the amount of time being spent. Well, quite. But I would ask if that's where young people are, do publishers need to meet them where they are? Because it's still important that everyone has reliable sources of news and if they're not necessarily engaging in a you know digital or print version of publishing or broadcast news perhaps you know should news outlets be attempting to reach them on tiktok i they do they absolutely do i, I there isn't a news organization or a, a, a publishing organization, mag, magazine, consumer publisher, B2B publisher. There isn't one I know of that doesn't have a strategy off platform, whether that's mm. whether that's Twitter or TikTok or Reddit or Instagram or but whatever. They all serve different purposes and they, they engage their audiences. And I think that I've also, you know, BBC went on a roadshow about two, three years ago, meeting people on the street. I, I, I think news is more aware of its ability and need to engage those audience th than ever. And I think that there is a recognised understanding of the difference between news content that's surfaced and pushed throughout social media platforms and content that is derived from 
a trained journalist. These are people who know how to investigate and verify facts responsibly. They know how to tell brilliant stories that engage. And they know, which is important to the democracy point, how to hold power to account. They know these things. But the, I, I guess, you know, the challenge always is that you can't necessarily reach everybody. But I think more than ever, there is a, a, um, a need. Um, I mean, the, the thing that used to frustrate me, and it, it almost demonstrates my sort of naivety, working through a career in, 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 in media publishing and, and ostensibly starting on the, the commercial side, I'd always assumed that you had to sort of qualify to be able to take ads. You know, you have to be, as the journalists are and the content that where I've worked, they've produced, they're accountable. They're held to account by uh, editorial codes of practice. They may occasionally breach those, but there is a process that holds them to account. Um, I mean, you know, journalism doesn't always shower itself in glory there are plenty of things that people can throw back to people like me and say what about this scenario what about that scenario but it is held to account now i always struggled I, you know when you saw the, the the facebook advertising models evolve and everything i thought but how can brands one be comfortable and two how can they be allowed to justify advertising within those environments if they're not willing to be held to accountable for the content that's in those environments. I know it sounds naive, but it's kind of the principles I assumed were already in place, you know. Well, up to a point, Lord Copper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we, we, it's very easy and necessary to deal with the many challenges uh, facing anyone in the media. Uh, but before we get sort of swept away in a tide of gloom, sometimes you just have to pause and think. Uh, excuse me, um, in the year, uh, it was predicted in the year 2000 there would only be three national newspapers left in the UK. Uh, the Independent mm. is a special case. Uh, it took its decision to go online only, and that was almost certainly forced upon them because the, the number of print sales were below any viable number that was worth doing. And in a way, a burden has been lifted, and, and they're, they're profitable. But what is quite remarkable is there's still profits to be had in all of those national newspapers still producing uh, uh, print versions, albeit much, much reduced numbers, and they're dependent on uh, their online editions, and, and a, a lot of journalists have lost their jobs. But it's still remarkable, the degree of stability, mm. given what we would have predicted, uh, you know, 20 years ago. But isn't will, that, will, will this continue? But, uh, but who knows? But isn't that the glorious thing? I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of, having worked at news publishers as well as other types of content creators, is that, yeah, there is something fantastically resilient about these organisations. Does, does, you does know, seem to me. We've got, we've got news publishers that were creating content at the same time that Napoleon was gesticulating in Austerlitz or whatever. You <laughs> Indeed, know. and talking about that though, can we can we pause for a moment's sad reflection um, on the fate of the Vienna Zeitung, uh, that was the world's oldest newspaper. There's some argument about it, but this was widely believed to be the world's old, oldest newspaper. Founded a daily newspaper, founded in 1703, wow. and it's mm. just published its last print edition. Um, no, it's going to continue online, but there's the usual old, old corollary. 63 journalists will come down to 20, mm. and it won't be ever quite the same again. Yeah, I think what's interesting also is the we underestimate the momentum around the sustainability piece now as well. And I think some decisions not to print uh, in the future 
will probably be derived out of... Um, but that's mostly delivery. The actual production of, of, of print is hugely sustainable and always has been. Mm. New forests are, are planted all the time. Oh, For every tree that goes down, they're replaced. But, but it's the, the actual physical distribution, uh, distribution yeah. that uh, there's an argument, of course. Regardless, would you say that simply reading, reading print is very different than reading digital. For one, no you question. have a, a number of stories in one page as opposed yes. to you click into a story and maybe there's a, there's, a, there's a context, there's a relativity yeah. that's, that's not there on, on a computer screen or even less so on a, on a mobile phone. It's, well, it's the same then for you know, all these publishers that are you know, going into TikTok. Very different medium, requires a different message. Yeah. Uh, Ray, you mentioned that it, it's very much a, a comedic sort of center, TikTok yeah. specifically. So you have a lot of news and, publishers. And, and YouTube. Yeah. And YouTube. Yeah. And so you have a lot of publishers that are working to be sort of funny, which is not necessarily on brand for all of them. It's a bit, it's a bit strange to watch the Washington, like a, a guy representing the Washington Post who is a TikTok creator and he's talking about the news. He's kind of cracking a joke. But they're finding the way. It's part of the journey, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. No, but it is. I mean, I know to a degree part of what you'd like to talk about is the sort of challenger brands. Some of these publishers have have been challenged, obviously, just to stay in business. But again, this is one of the things that talks to the resilience piece. People found new ways of delivering news and new formats. And the established media organisations that represent the community I represent they learn from this they they evolve they you know they might not get it right every time but it you know and it, it's a, it's a it's a firm ad, adage you know don't be afraid to test don't be afraid to try but i do think be authentic be who you are is is a very important part of this I think so. There were there were ne- the, the jokes in the Financial Times were never that funny. No, <laughs> Ray. Very straight question. Mm. How healthy do you think the publishing environment is for news currently? It's challenged for sure, and there's a paradox. In a way, in a curious way, there's never been so much news, so many big stories. There was somebody saying the other day, the only thing the only thing missing last week was a sort of plague of locusts. You know, <laughs> it was one huge story after another. Um, but there is this paradox um, that um, the more the news stories, and, and in fact, there will be more existential news news stories about about our life on this planet. And there's a danger that because so much of the news is deeply alarming across such a wide front, and the Reuters uh, study mentioned earlier highlighted it, there's maybe as much as 50% of people just don't want to know the news anymore, mm. partly because they're not interested, but mostly because the news is mostly gloomy and they find it depressing. I mean, is news bad for you? Bad for your psychological health is a question I suppose we have to ask just because just because we've been involved in it all, all our lives. You, there, there is a serious, serious question. Maybe you should switch off sometimes. Certainly not being addicted 24 hours a day to... We should, we, should all, we should all switch off occasionally, yeah. remove yourself, spend time doing the things you enjoy with yes. the people you love. Yeah. But but I, I, I feel positive about news. I think that... Um, in many respects, certainly what I've been observing the last 15 years, you know, they've, they've, they've endured some really massive challenges. And, um, and I think it's at times been about as bad as you can imagine it would be. And I think now they, they are, um, you know, rewriting their future. Uh, I think they are, uh, you know, as I say, 
innovative. They learn. They they see what's going on around them. They adapt very very quickly, and uh, I think quickly anyway, because there has to be that 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 payoff. For, you know, that your strategy has to be something that can be financially supported and, and and successful. And I think that you know when you talk about um, journalists trying to present themselves in a sort of more comical and humorous way, aside from those those endeavors um you've got to think about how strategically some of these platforms the way you could engage audiences also require a robust commitment to resource and mm. doing things yeah. developing content in formats and ways you never have which require investment so you have to be very sure that that's that's also something that fits your brand and your brand's position. So I think it varies across publisher and, and, and environment. And also, I think it is possible to be a bit more optimistic despite the obvious financial challenges. I think it's a generalization, but I think there's a greater re realization on both, um, both the from sides of the advertising industry and the media that their future is held together by one word, trust. That, that you have to trust the ads, you have to trust the journalism in those ads. And there were, I was critical of many people in the advertising industry a few years ago, where they just went to, along with any old programmatic nonsense and they didn't care where their ads appeared next, whether whether it's you know right wing nutters or it, they, they were just they were just taking the easy choice. And you, you were and right that, to be critical, and, and that I think has improved greatly. I oh, think I think they're more concerned about the context in which their commercial message uh, appears, and that's good for the entire industry. I think they are. They are. It's, I mean, it was just you know it was a sort of hyper or a supercharged opportunity that suddenly technology enabled you to target anyone that you wanted to reach for the lowest common denominator and it was a it was a you know without i don't want to make analogies to some people's chase lifestyle to the, chase, to the, chase to the bottom will do won't it yes that's that's, that's exactly what it was and um but lessons again you know we talk about these patterns lessons have been learned there is um you know the re one of the reasons i feel more positive than ever is that all i hear is the appetite for direct conversations, the desire for brands to be placed and positioned around quality news and mm. environments uh, with engaged audience. At the same time, you know, I, and, and I, I try to be very positive, but I'm also a deeply cynical person. Um, I know so many people, you mentioned there's an issue of, of news avoidance, but you also have an issue of even people that might not be news avoidant don't really want to pay for news. And good quality news, of course, requires a great deal of resource, especially as you're trying to uh, adapt to new technologies or new platforms, for instance. Um, how does the business model, you, you sort of alluded to earlier that it's changed a bit, um, that advertising is not necessarily on its own capable of supporting a huge business operation, or is it perhaps you might, you might have a different view. Clearly there's been a move to a lot of subscription models or at least a mixed model. The Guardian has its own uh, rather unique model as well. What do you think is, is necessary for the next version of the web? Well, you continue to diversify. If, you know, to monetize what you do, you need to continue to diversify. Um, but it, it, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. It really depends on who you are and who your audiences are and, and the type of content you develop. I mean, yes, you talk about, I, I think you look at data around 2010, as recent as that, 
premium content news publishers represented about 30% of ad spend. It's now somewhere around 3%. So, you know, it was hard. Um, I think it was really interesting, sort of 2016, 2017, I'd hear a lot of publishers, particularly news publishers, uh, bemoaning this behavioural targeting behaviour and how much money had shifted towards Facebook, Google and, and, and other platforms. And they were behaving or, or, or articulating themselves as if affronted by it, which rightly I'm sure they were. But really good co- content, co- commentators like Nick Newman, the people involved with Reuters Institute will turn around and say, but look what you've got. You've got fantastic audiences. Those audiences, you know, we used to be tra- chasing the transient traffic, just trying to monetize every click. And publishers have moved beyond that mm. and um you know we aren't looking uh, uniquely at ad funded models there is diversification there are other strategies but here's something i, I don't know um peter field who wrote the long and short of it um he he processed some ipa data and he analyzed um brands that spent with news brands between 2018 and 2022 uh, and compare to those to those that didn't. Now, the brands that advertised in those environments, I mean, we're not always talking hard news here, by the way. There's fantastic content, lifestyle content, entertainment content, sports content that the, these organisations create. But going back to the point, he, he was able to demonstrate there was an 88% uplift in terms of profit growth for those brands that advertised within news environments as compared to those that didn't. Mm. Yes. That's a, a number that should be written in a lot of walls. It's um, it's, it's 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 very impressive. But getting back in a, in a way to where you started off, Richard, um, I, I um, uh, getting money out of and uh, out of the big uh, billionaire companies and and tech companies and also the interlopers coming in and ripping off your uh, uh, your intellectual property. I understand that you are at the heart of a collegiate body, and you have to take everybody with you, and you can't bang the shoe prematurely on the table. But don't you think it's really time uh, to get a lot, lot tougher that history would suggest that these guys don't do common sense, which is what, what your hope was, and um, they're, they're, what they're doing is just illegal. It's breach of copyright and should be treated in a legal forum. I know, and I do agree. But sometimes when you start going in down that route, you realise that there are... There's some grey areas of which nobody's entirely comfortable or confident with within legal councils that advise. Um, and it often takes a precedent to, to to give everyone that confidence. Now, there's obviously work that's gone on in various markets in the US um, and, and obviously Australia and Canada and across sue, Europe and sue France. The most, sue one of the most blatant users of, of your intellectual property and see how the law... Don't sue all of the lot of them. Choose, choose your target, sue one, and then you might be able to set just such a precedent. Well, yeah, and and, and I think that um, I think Getty Images uh, efforts is one that a lot of publishers mm-hmm. are watching. Yes, um, but I, I look, I'm, I, uh, I can avoid this in so much as I sit on a representative trade body uh, and I don't have to make that decision. Yeah. Um, privately, when I'm in the shower or cleaning my teeth, I, 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 I get excited at the prospect that. Somebody, somebody might, will do, break. Something. Yeah, somebody might do, but, do something. But but actually also one of one of the great things about our industry is as, as much as it could do your head in is that um 
you know we do have we do have an ability to be conciliatory in our approach and i you know when when jack and i first spoke about the open letter there are choices and there are things that could be done upstream and some of them more radical than others but i'm i don't know whether that's because we're all british or whatever but i still like to believe that you can sit down and resolve these things with a pragmatic and transparent conversation and um yes i am disappointed that that some of those operating in the space around the issue the in terms of contextual audience segments being commercialized and the scraping of data to inform those you know i i would love to for for um, and and I've spent eighteen months trying to speak to some of those companies and had conversations with many of them, never getting to quite where I wanted to. I, I'd still like to believe that well, there's still the possibility some would come forward and say, yes, you're right, we should be doing this under agreement. But they've had that opportunity. We've had that conversation, and where I'm really you know boyoed is to see that others have now joined in that conversation. Big advertising brands who are going. That there's there's a better way to do this, and that that now is being explored. So, well, Richard, Richard, that's very that's very good. But if you stand just a little bit higher up the uh, the, the food chain, the likes of Facebook and Google have only ever changed their behaviour when threatened with a very big stick, indeed, like two billion fines by the European Union. That I mean, they their, their efforts to reward creators of information and media. It's totally, totally at the margins of their resources and their profits. And it's only when they're f- faced with legal action, that political action, probably as much as legal action, that they actually change their ways. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Ray. I mean, uh, and this can maybe transition us into our, our quick hit section, because this is a bit of a, a recent news story that I wanted to get your, your quick takes on. Um, you did have finally pressure. You had, you've had it in Australia and Canada as well, just passed a law that yeah. essentially would have forced Facebook and Google to, to pay publishers for presenting uh, uh, the stories that, that they do present. And instead of doing that, they've just decided that we're not going to show news in those countries anymore. I mean, how much can you really, do they have too much power? How much can you strong arm? Uh, <laughs> if that's not too much power, what, what, on, earth, what on earth is? Yeah. Yeah. I think you know, I'm obviously focused on the conversations in in, in the UK and mm-hmm. very much watching developments in those other markets so that we can learn from those lessons. Publishers should be compensated for the content they create if it's being used by any other party. I'm very comfortable with that. Exactly what that looks like, um, how it manifests itself. I mean, you know, in Australia, one of the examples there was that, that there were big deals for large media owners brokered that seem to satisfy everyone else but what about the long tail of small and independent publishers and it took a, ph- a philanthropist to fund an alliance for them to all be able to, to to get what they richly deserve out of out of that transaction i also will and i think it is important to say that 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 there are two sides to all of these elements, and, and and these technologies enable publishers to monetize a lot of what they do in a way that they might not have otherwise been able to. I hope that we can get it right here in the UK with the creation of the DMU, potentially structural remedies that have taken the lessons from the examples that you've provided in Australia and Canada, 
and creating strategic market status for these organizations in a consultative way where everybody is, if you like, better and more collectively remunerated for what they do. Mm. Yeah, but these these examples almost make a negative point against the, the high-tech billionaires. The Canadian government takes an action, they re- react in a peevish almost a bullying way. Yeah. The only way the only way to tackle that is for more and more countries to do precisely the same. Otherwise they'll pick off anybody. They're they're they've taken that action to discourage the others. And they must not be allowed to succeed in my view. Mm. Next question. Twitter keeps popping up in the news for, some would say, all the wrong reasons. Uh, most recently, as the, the recording of, of this episode, uh, they've restricted uh, the amount of tweets that can be read by all users, especially users that are not paying for Twitter Blue, which is their premium service. Should publishers coordinate to leave the platform en masse, Ray? Probably not, because I am such a pro-Twitter person, or was, until... For some reason, Elon Musk decided to throw billions of dollars down the toilet by overpaying for it and then going almost crazy in his in his ill-thought-out um, management of, of his asset. I still don't know as a user what it means for me. Is it? I, I'm told that they're counting your scrolling down as opposed to your reading. If so, if that's true, then I'll run out of time quite quickly it, it just it just hasn't happened to me yet but it, it, it looks like they're trying to make your life more and more difficult to squeeze you into paying that uh, and the trouble is before musk the uh, twitter was probably one of the most um, important distributors of news and breaking events uh, and information the world has ever seen and now it could, be, it could be literally run into the ground and be mm. completely worthless. But there's no, the trouble is there's no real alternative. When I'm brushing my teeth, now I'm, I'm making this up. I don't think about this when I'm brushing my teeth. But <laughs> when, when, uh, when you stop to think, think about it, the ideal situation would be for a legitimate news organisation or group of news organisations to buy Twitter out of receivership because that's where it's heading. Richard, yeah. yeah, what do you hear from publishers on this? Well, I mean, look, you know, leading before the Twitter point, we're talking about fair and equitable, right? That's ultimately what mm. you were saying about Google, yeah. Facebook, and everyone else. And I think sure. that um, Twitter, exactly to Ray's point, um, certainly across um, meetings where I'm present with uh, SEO strategists and um, uh, and conversations around audience uh, discovery, you know, Twitter was a massive part to all of them and it, it, it's 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 a real challenge but equally you know when i talk about that newfound confidence of publishers to know that they actually are equipped to diversify and and uh, adapt where, wherever is required they're standing pretty strong around the idea of um paying for these uh these volume upgrades um i'm i'm not currently aware of anybody in the same way as you know facebook turn around and say you need to create reels content you know hang on a minute there's a massive investment where's the value where's the return so publishers aren't being forced down blind alleys in the same way that they might have been in the past and at the moment i think that they are all reevaluating the value of Twitter to their off-platform strategies and their audience discovery. And there are other things, um, Pinterest, and, you know, they're beginning to experiment more with TikTok and audiences, you know, social media platforms, I, 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 you know, again, maybe it's demonstrating age, but 
I'm not a massive participant of social media. Um, I am of a certain age and I do, you know, I do see them as moments in time, not necessarily flashing pans because they, they, but, 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 you know, we know how fickle people are as consumers. Uh, There is the odd QPR supporter out there that supported them for their entire life. God knows why. But, but, uh, thick and thin, mostly thin. Yeah. But, you know, you do, of course, there are people that broadly stay low, but, but audiences are fickle. They'll go where they have their best experience. And um, maybe Twitter's had its time. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that journalists have always seen it as a very important tool. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if Lord Rothermere and others are having that conversation. Perhaps they are. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I was thinking more of um, international players, mostly American-based, you know, like uh, the Wall Street Jones, Journal, Dow Jones getting together with the New York Times. They would have the clout possibly to do it rather than uh, uh, little old Lord Rothermere. Yeah, no, fair point. Boris Johnson's returned to journalism. Ray, you wrote about this in a recent column. You wrote a you wrote a reaction piece to his first column. Have you continued reading him? What do you make of it? Religiously, uh, the the second uh, was even worse than the first. <laughs> um, the third is more problematical because I, I see evidence that he was told to write about something interesting and political rather than musings about whether he could lose weight adequately with an injection. Then he goes and does it, and I forced myself to to read the whole way from the beginning to the end. There was some very very bad careless phrasing there that. For those who haven't had the uh, the pleasure, uh, it's a very very Boris like uh, thing. He decided to. Uh, he thinks he got Brexit done, though. Of course, the problems uh, that he left behind him are still mm. going through the society. So get Rwanda done. It was like um, if I was a teacher and an eighteen year old submitted that to me as an essay, I would give it a C minus. <laughs> what do you make of the? apparent closeness between the press and politicians in this country. I'm, I'm an American, so there's not a lot, there's not nearly as much overlap in the U.S., no. but you have people like Nigel Farage, Nadine Dory is getting anchor slots on GB News and Talk TV, even when some of the times they're actually still members of I, Parliament. I think, I, think, I think it's totally crazy uh, to imply for a moment. I know I know it's the BBC that has to do in, in, do impartiality, but they are subject to the same rules. So it's totally crazy. And therefore, I'm, com- I'm very pleased to see that Ofcom's decided to mount an investigation with the interesting argument uh, that the existing rules never envisaged anything like this and do not um, really easily apply to it. So they're, they're going to do a study to see what people think about this. They can have my thoughts straight away. Mm. You shouldn't be having sitting politicians presenting and chairing and interviewing each other. It's an absolute... I, I it should sure. be a joke in the real world. It's a conflict of interest. It's church and state on something. It, yes, it, it, it is a worry. But again, Ray refers to Ofcom. And again, this is what makes me sleep at night, knowing that when regulators operate efficiently and effectively, we have safeguards societally in place to ensure or or to react against the impacts uh, of these behaviours. I would would argue that on the whole, Ofcom uh, over over the years has done it a reasonable job, which doesn't mean to say you agree with every one of the decisions, but a reasonable job. On this occasion, GB News has been here for some time now. I think they've been rather slow to react to a very changing 
uh, situation which runs counter to much of the tradition of public service broadcasting in the UK. Mm. Yeah, but you, you're better qualified than any to, to, to understand that and the nuances, Ray. And you're right to say it, but I, I, I don't feel comfortable that I understand all, all, all of the elements of Ofcom to be able to say something from Fran. But if you're saying it, I support it, absolutely. No, 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 mm. no. But it, um, there is a very, very fine line in a democracy between anybody can legal and uh, a fit and proper person can have a broadcasting licence in this country, even, even though a lot of the investment comes from offshore but uh, there should be a rule preventing sitting members of the house of commons presenting allegedly news or current affairs shows and interviewing their own colleagues and their own ministers i'm curious in terms of uh, because you you probably have looked at it what what about the ministerial codes does that not prohibit this kind of behavior because quite frankly you're talking about politicians that vast majority do not give a monkeys about anyway do they yeah no it's true it's it, it, it's true i think i think they just have to declare it their their earnings i mean nadine doris as you know former culture secretary is a curious case under herself and she said she was resigning from the house of commons with immediate effect but she's still presenting a show there while still being a member uh, of uh, of the house of commons though i, I believe her constituents are slightly confused about this not having seen her for a very long time and she's not she, doing she, it and she doesn't go to the house of commons to vote either but is she doing it for the jungle as well then right <laughs> maybe, maybe 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 the jungle will be her her future uh, uh, she hasn't got a peerage uh, last question uh speculation continues over the sale of the telegraph as of the recording of this episode that hasn't happened and the latest news is that those talks haven't even necessarily started in earnest. Mm. Um, Ray, you wrote previously about speculating what might occur, but depending on who the new buyer is, or regardless of who the new buyer is, where do you see the the paper going? Well, not regardless of who the new buyer is, it's entirely uh, dominated by who the new buyer is. There is a danger that perhaps some of the financiers of the like of GB News uh, might want to actually take the Telegraph further to the right. Many, many will wonder if such a thing is possible in the real world, but um, but there there might be those who want to take it further to the right and, and unite it with a television station. That might make some sense. But the one, the one thing that still seems to be clear is that despite all the problems we have elaborated on the the, uh, the trials of existing media and newspapers in particular, I can safely predict there will be somebody who wants to pay quite a lot of money for that ancient brand. Mm. We will have to leave that there. Ray and Richard, thank you guys so much for joining me. This has been an, an awesome discussion. Uh, hopefully listeners have learned quite about a lot about the state of publishing i certainly have thank you both thank you thank you very much thank you for listening to the media leader podcast this episode was edited by our production partners trisonic you can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts but just remember please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode from all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time. Bye.